0: hi i'm lucas and i'm brian and this is the quacks podcast hey everybody welcome to the podcast lucas here uh just me this week brian is a little out of commission so hopefully he will be back next week Now, I was out of town this last weekend, so uh, I didn't really get a chance to dive into anything too deeply. Uh, So I grabbed a couple news articles and a blog post to cover. Uh, I was actually at a wedding in Minnesota, Minnesota. Uh, so it was great Uh, man it's so nice out there this time of year i mean just it's so beautiful i've usually only go into minnesota when it's really snowy out and so it's just a barren wasteland Uh, but this was really nice Uh, the fields they just go on forever the corn i mean it's just really beautiful so anyway let's get to these articles uh that are on health and whatnot so the first article it's about a teenager who apparently ate a junk food diet for years and went blind now, this article was making the rounds on health forums, and a lot of people were using it you know, to forward their agenda, so I thought, why not jump on the bandwagon and do that myself? So uh, anyway, this kid, the doctors labeled him a picky eater. He would only eat five foods. He ate french fries, chips, white bread, sausage, and ham. That's it. Now he started doing this in elementary school and they didn't really specify at what age in elementary school but I'm guessing it was under 10 years old. Now by the age of 15 he was starting to have some problems with his hearing and vision. So his doctors they ran an MRI on him and they looked at his ears and his eyes but you know they didn't really find anything wrong. They didn't find any uh, structural abnorm- the abnormalities. So a couple years later at age 17 his vision was even worse and he was declared legally blind, although I think he can still see with his glasses. Now they ran some blood tests on him and apparently he was deficient in B12, selenium, vitamin D, copper, and he was a little anemic. Now they didn't really give a direct explanation about what's going on, so people are kind of filling in the blanks. There are some studies showing that, you know, being B12 deficient can cause optic nerve neuropathy. I think that's probably the best explanation. Uh, The internet peoples, they they just jumped on all kinds of explanations, though. Uh, They're talking about how bad junk food is, uh, how bad processed food is, you know, you name it. But what I find really interesting is that his diet had absolutely no vitamin A in it. Now, maybe there's some in the pork, and and we really didn't get a, a detailed diet report. So, you know, who knows if he ate other things. But according to vitamin A research, the kid's eyeballs should have rotted out of his head and he should be dead. I'm actually pretty amazed how this kid has a normal height and BMI uh, even after eating this way for a decade. So, you know, in the natural world, we talk a lot about, you know, being deficient in this vitamin or this mineral, but the fact that this kid is doing as well as he seems to be doing at least tells me that, you know, deficiencies can take probably a while to show up. I mean, the kid is is not well off. I mean, he has bone density issues, low bone density, uh, which is pretty bad for a young man. But he is alive, which is is kind of cool. I mean, so while, you know, many people are looking at this, they're, they're saying to themselves, oh, this is a bad diet and all that stuff. I, I get that. I actually think the opposite perspective is worth thinking about, which is like, why isn't this kid just dead? You know? I mean, isn't it amazing that he's even alive given the lack of nutrition he's getting? I think so. So anyway, the next article, uh, it's about fluoride, which is a very hotly debated topic So, fluoride is a mineral that is added to many cities' water sources, uh, including Arizona here, actually, and it's added in an effort to combat tooth decay. Well, in mid August, the Journal of the American Medical Association released an observational study done at York University in Ontario, where they found, uh, I'm sorry, where they followed over 500 mother child pairs across six different cities in Canada. And they measured the mother's uh, urine samples for fluoride and estimated their fluoride consumption throughout pregnancy. And this is what they found. So this is from the article. Uh, They found that a one milligram per liter increase in concentration of fluoride in mother's urine was associated with a four and a half point decrease in IQ among boys, though not girls. So this is the IQ of the, the children. Now, when the researchers measured fluoride exposure by examining the women's fluid intake, they found lower IQs in both boys and girls. So a one milligram increase per day was associated with a 3.7 point IQ deficit in both genders. So the reason this study is such a big deal, I think, is first off because the JAMA published it, uh, and that's a mainstream medical journal. But the study also went through a really heightened peer review process. I mean, they they really looked at it to make sure it was well made uh, because it's so controversial. And even then, they still published it in the JAMA. Because the thing is, you know, there's there's something like I don't know, sixty different studies uh, showing that fluoride can be neurotoxic. So so really, you know, what we're seeing is something that the natural world has known for years and years, and it's it's becoming before our very eyes, mainstream knowledge. So there's this guy uh, named Ben Hunt who talks about stories and how they apply to investing. I, I'm into investing and stock trading. That's, that's another one of my hobbies. So I read about it. And investing, it's often about narrative. Uh, so it's about whether the Fed is going to lower rates and, and what they're thinking, meaning the story about what is happening is really important in investing and trading. So one thing Ben talks about a lot is how there is information out there that is known by many, but that's different than when information out there is known by many and we know that everyone knows it. Meaning information goes basically from unknown to known to everyone knows we all know. So I think many people know that fluoride is bad for you, it's bad for your health, in fact, you know, all the private water services, all the filtration systems, that, you know, that get rid of fluoride, that's a huge business. So, I mean, it's, it's very obvious that people know fluoride is not good for you. And these type of articles, they're important because it isn't necessarily bringing us new information, but it's letting everyone know that we all know this information. So another great example of this is tobacco. Everyone kind of knew that tobacco was addictive, but until we all knew that we knew, it was, it was taboo. It wasn't talked about. You know, government regulations didn't take it into account. So fluoride moving into this space where everyone knows it's not good for us, and we all know we know, hopefully we'll reach a tipping point where taking out of the water is just a no-brainer. And that, that'll that probably be a good day. Because five or six points on IQ, that that's kind of a big deal. Uh, I think standard deviation in IQ is like 15 points. So a third of standard deviation, that's pretty significant. So anyway, that was a neat article. Lastly, I want to chat about a blog post that was posted on this blog called MD Whistleblower, uh, which is run by a gastroenterologist by the name of Michael Kirsch. I think that's how you say his last name. And I really like this guy's website because he talks a lot about the medical field, and he has this real focus on truth. So uh, he criticizes, you know, in the right places. He he praises in the right places. I actually used some of his stuff in the colonoscopy episode from last week. So I I really like him. Now, about a week and a half ago, he put out a post that detailed how uh, the benefits of screening and disease prevention. Uh, whether that is for cancer like mammograms or cholesterol meds you know whatever it tends to be over exaggerated in their benefit in the public space now part of the reason is because the medical industrial complex as he says uh, it's a voracious beast that must be fed large amounts of uh, medical testing and treatment to survive but another part is how we understand the science of public health so he wrote a follow-up post to this one from a week and a half ago where he talks about this. And I thought I would just, you know, read the post to you guys. It's it's not that long and it kind of hits on something that I believe is really crucial to know uh, when you walk into your doctor's office. So let me pull up this post and we will read it. All right. The post is called, Should High Blood Pressure Be Treated? And here it goes. In last week's post, I promised an explanation why many screening and medical treatments offer so little benefit to individual patients. So if you invest the time to digest last week's post and the post before you now, then you will be equipped with new understanding that will enable you to make much better medical decisions. In accordance with this blog's mission, this is truly a, quote, peek behind the curtain, end quote, I grant you that these two posts are a little wonky, but try to stay focused. Here's the main reason that ordinary people and even some medical personnel become confused on this issue. Studies that assess screening testing and medical treatments are often performed on very large groups of patients. The reason for this is that smaller studies, for reasons I cannot fully explain here, are simply not felt to be sufficiently reliable. And this is why the Food and Drug Administration would never grant approval of a new medicine based on favorable results from small studies. If a benefit or failure is shown in a high-quality study with hundreds or thousands of participants, the results will be highly credible. It was large studies, for example, that demonstrated that blood pressure control prevented serious complications. So he's, he's basically talking here about statistics. Now, here is the key point. When a medical benefit is established in a large study, this benefit applies to a large population of people. When this medical test or treatment is later applied to an individual patient in a doctor's office, The benefit that this person receives may be minuscule. This reality is not appreciated by nearly all patients I have treated in nearly three decades. If a patient reads about a study that concludes that losing excess weight will cut the risk of stroke by 30%, the patient is likely to make two false assumptions. Assumption number one, he overestimates his risk of stroke. Assumption number two, he overestimates the true risk reduction of losing 10 pounds. If his risk of stroke is already very low, then reducing it by 30% offers almost no benefit. Follow the next example. Assume a study of 5,000 patients with high blood pressure demonstrating that lowering blood pressure 10% can half the risk of developing a heart attack. So blood pressure down 10%, 50%, less risk of heart attack this sounds like a game changer but not to an individual patient such as any person reading this the benefit is derived from studying a large population so assume that without treatment that a hundred patients of the five thousand or two percent would suffer a heart attack in 10 years with blood pressure treatment only 50 patients would suffer this outcome a 50 percent decrease in the adverse event wouldn't it be true that an individual patient would also have a 50% risk of developing a heart attack, a 50% reduction of risk developing a heart attack? Yes, but let's play this out. A patient comes to the doctor with modest high blood pressure and no other cardiac risks. The patient has read about this landmark study that concludes that treatment would half his risk of heart attack. Let's assume that this person's risk of developing a heart attack in 10 years is 3%. That means that this individual already has a 97% chance of staying well without any treatment. Treating this patient would lower his risk of heart attack from 3% to 1.5%, representing the 50% benefit we have been discussing. So with treatment, he now has 98.5% probability of avoiding a heart attack. Would someone enthusiastically take lifelong blood pressure medicine for an additional 1.5% protection when he already has 97% in the clear? Would most of us welcome this return on investment? I'm not even considering the costs of many of these treatments and the potential side effects. When large studies' benefits are applied to individuals, the benefits calculate out very differently. However, treating hundreds of thousands or millions of people with elevated blood pressure would save many of them simply because we are dealing with a large number of people. A percentage point or two of a million people is a respectable number. It's like 10 or 20,000. That's why it makes sense to treat many diseases from a public policy standpoint. The point is that each individual only enjoys a very modest benefit. I hope that readers have found this post and the blog overall to offer a very high return on investment. Your comments are always welcome. So, what I love about this article is that it articulates a distinction between public health versus individualized health. The public health perspective is looking at large numbers of people and using just very small percentage gains to mandate treatments for everyone. So like the author said, you know, save 1% more of 1 million people, you're getting a respectable amount of lives saved. The problem is that medicine over the decades has moved from this individualized treatment outlook to a public health treatment outlook. And this this really became a strong trend when Medicare and Medicaid were instituted. So at the time, you know, all the policymakers, they said Medicare, it's never gonna influence how medicine was done. But it has, and really in a big way. I mean, doctors, they basically think in diagnosis codes these days, everything has to fit into a box so that it can be built and handled by this massive bureaucracy correctly. So so why is this important for you to know? It's important because when you go into a doctor's office, some percentage of the things you hear will be individualized to you, depending on what you're coming in for, but a large percentage will be about public health. And you know you'll talk about what's going on with you. You'll, you'll, you'll tell them your symptoms or whatever. The doctor will listen. They're going to listen for key words that will then put you into certain diagnosis boxes and you will be served up a public health treatment that in all likelihood will do, you know, very little for you individually. But when applied across millions of people, it's going to save a very small percentage of them. So, you know, as we go On with this podcast, we're going to talk more about these. And we've already talked about some of them, like statins and colonoscopies. And these public health treatments, you know, they usually fall into preventative medicine. I'm I'm obviously not talking about coming in with like this massive lung infection and getting antibiotics. That's obviously very individualized. But this also means that if you do decide to go along with these public health treatments, if you're getting any kind of side effect, it's it's probably not worth continuing with the treatment at all, and I'm not giving you treatment advice. I'm just saying, so so like like the doc said in the article, you know, if you go from ninety seven percent in the good to ninety eight and a half percent in the good, that is such a minuscule gain for you if you're experiencing any kind of hardship from taking the meds and either, you know, cost or side effects experience or whatever, you're going to really have to make a decision on whether it's even worth it. So a great example of this from my personal life is my grandma. She's my last living grandparent and she has been taking a statin drug for a long time. So her cholesterol numbers and, you know, they're they're good, quote unquote good, uh, but she has dementia. So she's losing, you know, more and more of her memory every year. Now talking with her, it's become crazy difficult because she will basically ask you the same few questions over and over again. And the whole time she's doing it, she's getting more and more anxious about it. And it's almost like she's like trying to hold on to something she can't quite find. Now, one of the possible side effects, not proven, but possible side effects from statins is memory loss. So, in my opinion, and, and from reading articles like this, they should have taken her off these statins as soon as she started showing memory problems because the benefits for statins, they're minuscule, but the memory loss that she's experiencing is, is definite. It's definitely there. The doctors, they should have recognized, in, in my opinion, again, that the public health benefit was outweighed by the possible individualized detriment to the patient you know, they should have looked at those scales and said, look, this, this might be a side effect of the statins. We should take it off. You know, we should take her off of it. Um, it. It far outweighs the public health benefit. But doctors are moving away from that individualized treatment towards public health treatments, which means you as the individual, you have to watch out for yourself and make these types of des- decisions. And and no one really wants to make these decisions. You know, you're, you're not an expert, but you can help yourself by finding doctors that understand this and are willing to take you off these public health treatments at the first sign of trouble and really avoid doctors that kind of push these types of things on you. In fact, I mean, if you ask me, I'd I'd probably avoid doctors that are just pushy in general. So anyway, I really liked that article. I, I hope you liked it too. I think it's really crucial to know that, to kind of have this distinction in your head between the public health treatments and individualized treatments. So anyways, that is all for this week. Uh, Just to let you know, I will be getting more active on Twitter in an attempt to spread this podcast, as well as kind of give valuable snippets of information. You can actually get a lot of value from Twitter. I don't know if you've you've ever gotten on there. It's, It's a great platform and a terrible platform but it's great too um you can get a lot of value i'm going to be talking about autoimmunity as well as uh the medical establishment so if you want to follow along my twitter handle is quacks pod that's q u a x p o d if you're interested so thanks everyone and we'll see you next week